This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, November 5th, 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. The welfare states of Europe continue to provide a cautionary tale for the United States. At a Cato Institute student briefing, senior fellow Tom Palmer laid out some of the costs, both seen and unseen, of centralizing power over human welfare. People around the world understand what we mean by a welfare state, but most Americans do not. They associate welfare with the poor only. They don't think that they're receiving welfare. That's what poor people get. And yet the widest definition of means-tested programs uh, in the federal budget indicates that between a quarter and a third, closer to a third, of the portion of the federal budget associated with transfer payments could be considered oriented towards the poor. The great bulk of it is not. In fact, all of us live in a welfare state. We are all forced upon penalty of jail into paying for Social Security, Medicare, and a host of other programs. We're taxed for or receive money via agricultural subsidies, support for student tuition, state universities, and much more. Our homes, home purchases are subsidized by a variety of tax breaks, and then the loans are securitized by government-sponsored agencies that direct loans to less qualified buyers. I'll talk about that in a moment. And then don't forget our massive corporate welfare programs that subsidize firms to market lemons abroad, to be able to market a wide variety of different products, all subsidized by the United States government, the subsidies of solar panel companies, for example, the Solyndra case, and of course producing ethanol and possibly the most astonishingly inefficient program for energy production imaginable in which not only is it economically inefficient, but some suggest it actually takes more than a gallon of fossil fuels to produce the equivalent in ethanol in terms of motive power. So welfare states are not just a system or a set of beneficent gestures, as they're often presented. They're <clears throat> systems that must generate coalitions of constituencies sufficient to maintain themselves. So everyone is roped in in one way or another. This is one reason why means testing of Social Security benefits has been resisted for so long because it would be evident some people are paying and not receiving. Instead, everyone qualifies for Social Security. Now, the welfare state originates as a system of control through dependency to generate loyalty to the state. If you want to think about this particular system, Otto von Bismarck should be considered its, considered its grandfather, the man who introduced blut and eisen, blood and iron, as a principle of European policy. He confirmed that the purpose of what he called state socialism was to generate dependency and thus loyalty, which was what a powerful Germany needed in order to dominate Europe. Whoever, and I quote, has a pension for his old age is far more content, far easier to handle than one who has no such prospect. Look at the difference between a private servant and a servant in the chancellery or at the court. The latter will put up with much more because he has a state pension to look forward to. A.J.P. Taylor, the great British historian in his biography of Bismarck, concluded, quote, social security has certainly made the masses less independent everywhere. Yet even the most fanatic apostle of independence would hesitate to dismantle the system which Bismarck invented and which all other democratic countries have copied. Well, he was right. The welfare state has made the masses, quote, less dependent everywhere. That is to say, more dependent everywhere. But I think we have now reached the point where we can, should, and must dare to dismantle, quote, the system which Bismarck invented. 
where the welfare states of the world are fatally overextended. Now, many argue that the welfare state is about helping the poor, but I suggest that they should ask whether the same politicians who support food stamp payments to make food more affordable for the poor are also the ones who support agricultural price supports that make that same food more expensive. Are they helping the poor when they make their food more expensive or when they subsidize its purchase? And when the surpluses that are generated by price floors are then sent abroad through US foreign aid, we find the same members of Congress voting for that as well. So keeping prices high, subsidizing the poor to pay for that higher priced food, and then sending the surpluses generated by price supports abroad are best understood as part of a political strategy to maintain the incomes and political support of farmers. If it were just about making food cheaper for the poor, there'd be no need for floor prices for agricultural products. I think this is better understood as a political system of graft, the use of taxpayer money to generate political support, not a system of benevolence toward farmers or the poor or foreigners. Now, we should recall that the welfare state may be justified in public discourse as a safety net. That's a typical thing when you talk about it, say, we need a safety net. But that's not what our welfare state is. It's not a safety net for those who have fallen through some misfortune. <clears throat> it's an all-encompassing net that traps all of us. Indeed, the cradle-to-grave system, I learned only recently, the man who used that in a public speech was Winston Churchill, not uh, a leftist by usual definition who promised a cradle-to-grave system. A safety net may be justifiable, but the justifications offered for it should not be stretched beyond all plausibility to encompass the actual welfare state that we see today. Now, I discussed those issues at some length and after the welfare state, and I also offer there evidence for the following claims. First, the welfare state, the actual existing one, not an ideal one, that wouldn't do foolish things, but the one we actually have is substantially responsible for setting in motion the chain of events leading to the financial crisis. The seeds of the current crisis were planted in 1994 when the U.S. administration announced a grandiose plan to raise home ownership rates in the U.S. from 64% to 70% of the population through the National Partnership in Home Ownership, partnership between the federal government, banks, home builders, financiers, realtors, and others that had some special interest. And the way in which this was going to accomplish it was, quote, making home ownership more affordable, expanding creative financing. Remember those words, creative financing. Simplifying the home buying process, reducing transaction costs, and so on. So that extension of the welfare state, making it possible for more people to own homes through government policy sounded so reasonable to so many. Why shouldn't people own their own homes just because they haven't saved for a down payment, don't have good credit? or maybe don't even have jobs? Why not make home ownership more affordable through creative financing? Government agencies, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, government-sponsored enterprises, were directed to convert renters into homeowners by lowering down payment rates, drastically lowering bank lending standards among banks, increasing the amount of money directed towards less qualified purchasers, securitizing those mortgagers, and a host of other measures. And it was bipartisan. It wasn't just the Democrats or just the Republicans. The FHA, under the Bush administration, the Federal Housing Administration, offered loan guarantees on mortgages with 0% down payment. As Bush's 
uh, Secretary of Housing and Urban Development said, quote, offering FHA mortgages with no down payment will unlock the door to homeownership for hundreds of thousands of American families, particularly minorities. And he added, we do not anticipate any costs to taxpayers. <laughs> now, the U.S. government deliberately and systematically lowered lending standards, generated a housing bubble, and did so in order to make sure people had access to homes, to be responsible for their welfare. In the book, Johann Norberg explores that issue at much greater depth. Second, the welfare state is primarily responsible for the current debt crisis that is, that is uh, shaking the world, most notably in the European Union. Professor Aristides Hatzis in the book details that in the case of Greece, but it's actually a wider phenomenon. Huge increases in spending in recent years in the US the looming issue of unfunded liabilities is overwhelmingly due to welfare state expenditures. To be sure, foolish foreign interventionism abroad has cost a couple trillion dollars, and that's a serious matter that has contributed to the problems that we have. But in fact, the bulk of this has been welfare state expenditures domestically. And third, the unfunded liabilities and the resulting fiscal imbalance that Michael Tanner treats of are unsustainable. The welfare state will not last. There's an old truism that things that can't keep going on won't. And our welfare states won't continue. What matters is what <clears> comes <throat> after. What will we do when the state is not able to make good on the various promises that have been made to populations on the basis of which those populations made their decisions about the future? We can't just fiddle some dials or tweak a few things or push little buttons on the machinery of policy. Very serious, radical changes and cuts have to be made. What are we going to do? And that is the problem that faces the millennial generation. The job of creating peaceful and orderly transitions from state-induced dependence on the one hand to freedom and independence on the other, from perpetuated poverty to upward mobility, from clientelism to active citizenship, falls to the generation that is reaching adulthood today. Your elders have failed you. It's up to you to express in public the systematic and, systematic and constructive involvement in public debate and policy formation, your justified anger at the wastefulness, the irresponsibility, and the recklessness of your elders who thought that kicking the can down the road would make the problems disappear. We're down the road now, and this generation cannot kick the cane any further. I think it's the end of the road for the welfare state. Tom Palmer is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work at Cato.org.